everyone and welcome to another episode of the Dot Tech Engineering Podcast. My name is Kevin Holditz, Head of Platform Engineering at Form3. Today I'm very excited that I'm joined by Jan Trey, Serverless Hero, um, an expert at all things serverless with AWS. How's it going today, Jan? Hey man, good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Cool, thanks for taking the time to come on the show. Do you want to give us a bit of an intro into what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess uh, I've been working with uh, AWS for well over 10 years now, um, probably one of the early adopters uh, when it comes to AWS and cloud. Um, I've been, you know, I guess I've run through the whole journey of uh, starting with uh, EC2 and then when containers came around, uh, did some stuff with container uh, containers. And the last, I would say about five years, I've been mostly focused on serverless technologies because uh, I spent so much of my career just, you know, setting up virtual machines, uh, updating machine images and uh, doing capacity planning and setting up auto scaling and all of that stuff just so that I can ship a couple of lines of code. You often find yourself spending maybe 70, 80% of your time on all the infrastructure stuff just so that you can ship some business logic um, and sometimes uh, that's all your customer you know, cares about. And I think uh, with serverless, that was the the thing that made me, you know, maybe uh, sort of switch that, that I guess, uh, that um, uh, that ratio around to spend uh, so now I can spend the most of my time doing the stuff that my customers actually cares about. Uh, the last couple of years, I've uh, pretty much focused on, you know, using entirely serverless technologies, things like uh, API Gateway, Lambda, DynamoDB, Cognito, and so on. And uh, I've worked for, I guess, quite a few different industries uh, from e-commerce, banking, uh, social networks, uh, gaming. Uh, I've done a lot of uh, mobile and uh, Facebook gaming in the past. Um, and nowadays, I spend most of my time working as, a, as an independent consultant, helping other companies adopt AWS and serverless technologies in their particular area. Uh, and also work with Lumigo as a developer advocate and Lumigo is a troubleshooting platform for serverless applications that make it really easy for you to debug things uh, when something goes wrong. Or if you just, in the case of uh, when you develop a new feature, uh, makes it a lot easier for you to see what's actually going on inside your functions as well. Cool, awesome. So I think you kind of touched upon it a bit there, but what do you mean when we say the word serverless? Because I think that means sort of different things to different people. I think to everyone, it means not managing the infrastructure. But to some people, that could mean if I've got a container, I can run that in in like Fargate and not have to worry about the servers underneath. Or do you mean a layer above that as in Lambda? Or what do you, what do you mean when we say serverless? Yeah, so I think uh, serverless is, uh, is not, well, it's more of a spectrum. Um, so on one end, you've got uh, something that's completely fully managed. Uh, something like Lambda is a good example of that, where you have, uh, you know, you don't worry about the infrastructure at all. There's no patching the machine images or anything like that. There's no there's not there's no worrying about and configuring uh, scaling uh, parameters. Uh, and then the, to the other end, you've got things like oh, you know, running your own data centers uh, where the actual uh, physical hardware is uh, your concern as well as all the software that runs on top of that. And then somewhere along the line, uh, you've got something that's kind of serverless uh, with uh, something like Fargate, which uh, you, you know, there's a lot of the underlying infrastructure is taken care of for you in terms of how many EC2 instances and, uh, um, and scaling those. 
but uh, you still are responsible when you're using Fargate for the machine images uh, in terms of the Docker image itself. Um, when there's an update to the, to the OS, you are still responsible uh, on, the, on the hook for updating your OS image. A good example of that would be when the Spectre meltdown happened. I was working for a games company at the time. We were building mobile games. Uh, I was working on a particular, uh, in particular, a mobile game where there's a lot of containers. Uh, we, are, we have to run for that game. And we spent maybe like a good week and a half, maybe two weeks, just patching all the different container images we have and making sure that uh, they get deployed and uh, in, in production. Um, the whole time, we kind of just forgot the fact that we got a bunch of Lambda functions running around as well until I uh, saw a tweet from Chris Mons, who's the, who heads up the developer advocate team at uh, AWS for Lambda and serverless, uh, I guess, components. Uh, he said, uh, oh, everything running Fargate and uh, all the uh, underlying infrastructure that runs Fargate and Lambda has been patched for uh, Spectre and Meltdown and then realized, uh, oh, wait, I completely forgot about we got all these uh, other things just running around. Uh, and and that's something that uh, you that's that's one of the benefits you get with um, uh, with you know, something like Lambda is that there's another whole layer of uh, operating system security that you no longer have to worry about. The whole layer of uh, uh, I guess managing the access to the uh, virtual machines you don't have to worry about anymore. Fargate gets you closer to that, uh, but not quite there. Another particular uh, characteristic of serverless that uh, we often think about uh, when we talk about something that's you know, something being serverless is the is the billing model. So with Lambda and uh, other services like API Gateway, Lambda, uh, DB, and so on, you have this option to pay for usage only, which means that if your application has no traffic because it's unfortunately not as successful as you would like, <laughs> uh, you don't pay for them either. You only pay for them when the people actually use your application, and so only uh, you only pay for them when your function actually runs. Uh, but when it comes to something like a Fargate and anything that runs containers, you still have to pay for uptime. So even if no one is using your application, you never scale to uh, to zero. Uh, you have some auto-scaling capabilities, uh, but you also have to always have to pay for something there, even when there's nobody using it. And you see many examples of this, whereby development environments are never quite you know, as low as you like, because there's always something you have to run there. And you see people putting into no, in, the, uh, in place uh, things like uh, when it's after five o'clock in the afternoon, uh, everything gets uh, scaled down to zero so that you can cut cost. Uh, but then you've got databases and things like that. So you have to also do something you know, funky there to scale down your database and then bring them back up the next morning. And if someone wants to work in the evening, they have to do some additional things to uh, bring up the infrastructure to, to be able to work on um, the, 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 um, the, uh, the back end. Again, with uh, serverless and Lambda and API Gateway, you just don't have that concern anymore. Another advantage you get with this uh, pay-per-use uh, uh, billing is that you can now even figure out really precisely which part of your application is expensive, and you can really precisely work out the return on investment on any kind of uh, performance optimization you want to do beyond well, assuming that your application is uh, performant enough in terms of the use, usability side of things. Um, but oftentimes you find, may think, okay, if I can make, if I can optimize the, this endpoint a little bit, it may save me some money uh, because uh, it reduces the amount of uh, EC2 servers we have to run by X amount. But which bit of your application do you optimize becomes quite hard for you to pin down because everything is going through the same box. Everything is uh, handled by the same uh, EC2 instances. So in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of attributing those uh, usage um, to individual features and functions, uh, it becomes really difficult. 
But when it comes to Lambda and the service components that gives you pay per use, uh, that becomes really simple, really straightforward for you to be able to figure out, okay, that function runs an awful lot and is uh, you know, attributing to a lot of our cost. And uh, if you want to save cost, we should focus on those functions. Oh, cool, yeah. I think you brought up a lot of interesting points there. So does there become a point then where, so I can totally get that if you're like launching a new service, Lambda might be a good fit because if it's not being used, you don't pay at all, which seems really good. But does there become a point where it tips the other way where if a service, if a fun particular function is being called so much, does it become more cost efficient to run that on Fargate or does the downsides of running on Fargate never outweigh the kind of the, the extra cost? Uh, absolutely. Um, so when it gets to something that's so, for example, yeah, if you look at uh, uh, maybe something like Netflix, maybe a good, quite a good example um, that the cost of running everything on Netflix, well, everything, everything that's in Netflix on Lambda would be probably pretty significantly more expensive than what they're doing right now. Um, but when you think about um, the, the the cost of your application, you always have to think about the total cost of ownership. So that's not just what you pay for AWS. And one of the things that you find is that um, that this good uh, phenomenon, well, maybe not good, uh, but this phenomenon that uh, uh, what gets measured gets optimized. And oftentimes you find teams that look at the AWS billing and think, oh, right, if we switch uh, this thing from Lambda to Fargate, we may save 100 bucks a month, um, not realizing that the additional operational overhead and the fact that you don't have the necessary skill sets in your team to actually run a containerized application at scale and get the same level of scalability and resilience and, uh, and redundancy that you get with uh, Lambda out of the box, uh, that means you have to hire additional skills, uh, skills into, your, in, into your team and that can easily put you back, you know, maybe tens of thousands of dollars or, or pounds a month to get the right people into the team uh, by the time you account for all the everything else like pension and heating and all of that stuff. Um, so like the demand saving you make on your AWS bills uh, becomes uh, pretty insignificant at that point. But if you're talking about something that, you know, oh, if we switch uh, that uh, application or that particular API uh, from Lambda and API Gateway to running containers, and that's going to save us like, you know, $10,000 a month or something like that, then uh, okay, maybe there's a good argument uh, for you to make that switch, especially if you already have the team uh, or the skills in the team to actually do that yourself. Because the running containers is not just a case of, uh, of putting your code into a container and then putting it to Fargate and the job done. There's a lot of you know, networking you got to do. And um, when it comes to networking, AWS is, um, well, it's, it's quite complicated, right? There's a lot of different things that you can configure. There's a lot of ways for something to break. And when you're talking about containers, there's always a worry of... Uh, um, uh, you know, people you know, logging on to your machines and things like that, um, which again, the Fargate makes it a lot, a lot better. There's just one less uh, vector uh, for you to, to worry about in terms of uh, what attackers can, uh, can do with, with, with application. Um, but still, uh, but yeah, I guess uh, back, back, back to your question. Uh, yes, there is a point which, uh, uh, which is more economically feasible to run uh, to run to run certain applications on containers compared to lambda but when you look at where that point is you have to take into account the skill sets you're going to require to do that with containers and what you have in, in, in the company and look at the total cost of ownership and not just uh, what's on your AWS bill every month yeah i think that's that's quite eye-opening that you say that and it's kind of obvious when you point it out but i think a lot of people will probably overlook that 
um, like you said, the total cost of ownership. And it's probably the tipping point is probably quite a lot further along than what most people attack it at. Because like you said, you're taking on a lot, a lot more there because now you've got to manage, like you said in the beginning, updating the container images when vulnerabilities come out and maybe how the containers are scheduled and you've got a lot more engineering complexity than if you just let the cloud deal deal with all of that so yeah absolutely i think uh, well in the uk we got this saying right uh penny wise uh, pound foolish <laughs> because that is what yeah. this kind of thing yeah no that's a really good that sums up in one line pretty much um so moving the conversation on a little bit, are there any particular types of application that are really well suited to serverless? So like APIs, websites, or can a serverless pattern be applied to anything? Or is there a particular use case where serverless doesn't work so well? I would say, I guess, uh, mostly, most of the, most of the use, I guess most workloads nowadays uh, can be run serverlessly. Um, I mean, back, I guess maybe back, uh, if you go back two, two three years, that, that may not have been the case. Uh, but nowadays, uh, in terms of what's available on, on AWS, uh, you know, things like WebSockets, you can do that with API Gateway um, to handle the WebSocket connection side of things, or you can use the AppSync, and then you just write your Lambda functions to handle specific logic when some events come through or when you need to push events to the, um, to, to, to the, uh, to the client. Uh, in terms of machine learning, uh, Lambda is actually getting quite popular nowadays uh, for doing machine learning stuff uh, because of the fact that you can actually do something pretty crazy where you can, uh, with Lambda, you can scale from zero to 3,000 concurrent executions uh, in no time. Um, and uh, with a 10 gig function, you can actually access uh, six CPU core that give you the ability to, to access, uh, uh, was it 18,000 <laughs> CPU cores uh, with a moment's notice. <laughs> Um, so that's pretty powerful, right? For things uh, for machine learning, and uh, on my podcast, I've spoken with quite a few people now uh, who are doing exactly that and uh, using Lambda to do a lot of machine learning stuff. And uh, for APIs, so obviously you've got API Gateway, Lambda, and DynamDB, which is a really popular combination. And if you're doing APIs, uh, I th I'm seeing more and more people adopt GraphQL and AppSync as well. That's also becoming more and more popular. Um, in terms of things that probably just still doesn't quite fit uh, very well. Um, so with the uh, with the fact that the lambda still has a limit of uh, fifteen minutes uh, execution time, so if you're running something that's really, I guess like a really big uh, ETL job kind of thing, uh, you may not be able to use lambda because uh, you know, you're going to run into that fifteen minutes uh, execution time limit. There are ways you can work around that, but by the time you do all of that work around, it may be easier to just take that ETL job or whatever and put into a, a container instead and run a Fargate task that you can trigger from um, from uh, CloudWatch, uh, sorry, EventBridge uh, uh, schedule, or you can use something like uh, AWS Glue, which can also just run a, um, run a container to, uh, to, as part of ETL job or something like that. Um, but the, yeah, I think most use cases are, I've, I've come across on a day-to-day -day basis that so can be quite comfortably done with Lambda. Uh, some more efficient than others, uh, sure, uh, but certainly is uh, is is possible and uh, probably should be done with Lambda these days. Okay. Um, when you're building an application using these technologies you speak about, so say we're building an API using, like you said, the great combination of API Gateway, Lambda, and DynamoDB, what would be a good testing strategy for that? Because I think um, we're kind of seeing this movement where people are moving more to uh, integration level testing. 
So that seems to be quite a good fit for Lambda because you really need to test all the services that they play together nicely in AWS. So what is kind of the testing strategy that you go for when testing applications that are built on serverless technology? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good uh, observation. And it's something that, that we've seen uh, with microservices that your application code becomes simpler and simpler, but there's a lot more of that interaction with other services. It could be your, um, your own microservices, um, or it could be other third-party services or other AWS services that you're using. And um, actually speaking about the... Uh, um, APIs. So I actually should also mention for the last question about uh, where Lambda may not be a good fit. There's also another element in terms of the traffic pattern. Um, so I was working for a company called The Zone, which is a big sports um, live sports streaming platform. And one of the things that uh, that makes Lambda not so good in the, on API side of things is the how spiky the API is. With Lambda, there's no upper limit on how many concurrent executions you can have but there is a limit on how quickly you can reach that, uh, that peak throughput, uh, which is uh, you can go from zero to 3,000 uh, straight away. And after that, you can only go up by 500 per minute. So you can think of it as uh, 500 micro VMs that they can, they, uh, can, be, uh, can be created uh, for your functions per minute. So if you got uh, like something like the zone where you go from zero, literally a couple hundred users to uh, one point something million concurrent users uh, in 30 seconds, uh, when say uh, Man United plays the Man City or Chelsea plays Arsenal or Real Madrid plays the Barcelona, then uh, the, your, your traffic is too spiky for, uh, for Lambda to handle. So things like that uh, will still be not quite, not, not so great uh, when it comes to uh, you know, running stuff on Lambda. Um, so, and back to the API and, and, test and, and, and testing, um, absolutely, we also see more and more people now focus their testing efforts on, uh, on uh, integration level. So in terms of my approach, I, I don't write that many functions that has got complicated business logic. Uh, there's a lot of uh, I/O. There's a lot of uh, calling different services and uh, and doing some you know, data transformation and stuff like that. So I don't typically write any unit test. Uh, almost never write unit tests nowadays because uh, my functions don't do anything complicated. Most of the complicated things are done by are provided by other services. But where I do have to write some complicated business logic, then I still have unit tests to test specifically modules that encapsulate those uh, business logic. But the vast majority of my test cases are written as integration tests where I run the function locally, but have them talk to the real AWS services. So if I've got functions that need to query DynamoDB, I will have the function, I'll run the function code locally and then or, well, on a test runner, or in this case can be on CI server, um, and then talk to the real AWS services and make sure that your integration, so you know, your query syntax and all of that that you're sending to DynamoDB is correct. And once that gives me pretty good confidence that my code is fine, uh, but at runtime, there's a lot more happening than just what's, what the, the, the code I've written. There's a lot of configuration, there's a lot of permissions, there's a lot of other things uh, that need to be hooked up to make sure everything actually works end to end. So uh, I also write my tests in such a way that I can easily toggle a high level test case like when someone hits this uh, endpoint, uh, something should happen and the record should be created somewhere. And so we can then do a get after we do a put, um, things like that. And um, so I can write the, the, t uh, the test cases um, and run them both as integration tests. So I run the tests before I deploy my code. 
and then uh, I can and then after I deploy, I've got an actual endpoint there sitting in the AWS. I can then run the, the same test case, but written in such a way that I can toggle it to so say when we hit these endpoints uh, to actually make a request to the HTTP endpoint. So that kind of test the, AP, uh, the API layer is actually fine. And of course, depending on how your team is structured, you may also have uh, um, dedicated QA teams that writes uh, more of those Cucumber-based uh, tests where you test uh, the, both the front-end and the back-end, end-to-end, and not just focus on the API side of things. Uh, and in, uh, in a lot of the teams I've worked in, you, have, uh, you, see, you, you still have um, specialists in the full-stack team where the whole team is full-stack, but you have uh, back-end specialists and you've got front-end specialists, and uh, sometimes the uh, back-end work is done beforehand ahead uh, of the the front end ahead uh, of the the front end changes um, so i would still have uh, those end to end tests that cover just the api layer to make sure that from the api contract point of view everything we're doing is uh, uh, is compliant and then the, you can and for larger companies you also may want to look at things like contract driven uh, testing so that uh, you have um, things like um, uh, packed and the pack broker that collects all the different test cases from the consumers of your API so that when you're making changes next time uh, you know for sure that you're not breaking your consumers uh, because unfortunately there's a lot of uh, things that can break uh, even just in terms of uh, what HTTP status code you return even though um, you may not well for you maybe just uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not it's not it's, it's not a breaking change uh, but your customer, your consumers may be depending on certain behaviors that um, you don't you don't you don't consider to be part of your contract. Yeah, that's um, you said another quite a wide collection of interesting points there. So we make use heavy use of Pact at Form Three. So just to paint a picture for the listeners, it's basically a a contracting testing framework where you can. Um, as a consumer, you can rely on some provider packs and then you can, which are basically contracts of what, if you're given this request, this is going to be the response. And then you can play those back around the other way again on the provider side to make sure that when you actually send that request, you actually get that response. So it's kind of, you can independently test the contract between two services. And then as Jan just pointed out, if you make a change to that, so instead of returning a 200, you might return a 201 something that you think is fairly minor and non-breaking, suddenly your downstream service might fall over in a heap because it's got somewhere hard-coded to say expect status code equals 200 and you can kind of catch those catch those uh, problems. Um, I just wanted to kind of pick up on, so with your whole testing cycle, what would be a typical pattern that someone could use to basically deploy their infrastructure? So I suppose stage one is we've got to... Uh, set up a brand new API gateway to say we could generate like a UUID or something and prefix all of our infrastructure with that UUID or some random name. So this is like our test. For this test run, we're going to bring up a brand new API gateway, a brand new Lambda on the back of it, a brand new DynamoDB, and then we're going to run all our tests for it and assert that it all works and tear it down at the end. Is that something you normally do? And if so, what would be kind of the tooling you would use to spin up the infrastructure for that test run. Is it Terraform? Do you use CloudFormation? Do you not do that? Do you pre-install the infrastructure or what the techniques you can use there? Um, so I don't use uh, Terraform um, because the Terraform is just, uh, when, it come, when it comes to building stuff with uh, API Gateway and Lambda and so on, uh, it's just, um, 
quite low level tool uh, and uh, you write, end up writing a lot of uh, infrastructure code. Um, so using, I typically use the tools like a service framework, uh, which makes that a lot easier. And it's the, I guess it's more of an application level framework as opposed to infrastructure level framework. And it still translates to, it ultimately trans, uh, translates to, com well, compiles to uh, CloudFormation and uses CloudFormation to do the deployment. And uh, one of the things you, you get out of the box is uh, this, uh, this concept of a stage. Um, so when it comes to uh, what you're describing is uh, is a quite a common practice nowadays, where as part of a CI/CD pipeline, you deploy a temporary environment with your application. So in in my case, I'll typically have my API gateway, Lambda, and and the DB tables that are owned and exclusive used by this particular API uh, all in the same stack. So when it comes to deploying a temporary environment, it's literally just going to be a case of running serverless deploy dash S for overriding the stage and then give it a name, which could be something as simple as uh, taking the hash uh, from the uh, from, from the CI um, environment. Uh, and then uh, that, will have, that will give me a temporary environment and I can run all my end-to-end -end tests against that environment. And then at the end of CI CD pipeline, um, I would just you know, tear that down and make sure that, uh, and so I don't have to worry about this uh, shared environments with all this uh, dummy data that gets put in there uh, during testing and the CI CD pipelines and whatnot. So that's quite a common pattern and using something, something like the server framework uh, makes that uh, very trivial to actually do that. Uh, with um, what's it uh, with, with with Terraform? There's uh, also you know, with the server framework, it gives you a lot more um, tooling in terms of uh, being able to say invoke the function locally, invoke the function remotely, and a bunch of other things. And it's got a really rich ecosystem of uh, plugins that allows you to extend what the server framework can do and uh, make it a lot easier for you to do other things. Uh, one thing that I often do, for example, is uh, I will. Um, I don't use Lambda layers uh, as a replacement for something like NPM uh, because I think there's a lot of problems with uh, using layers that way. However, layers is quite a useful way for you to um, to avoid uploading the same artifact every single time when your function's dependencies haven't changed. So with the server framework, it has got this uh, plugin called the serverless layers, which essentially looks at your package.json and see what the version of the dependencies you have. And if they haven't changed, then they don't, you don't, um, then it, it kind of just skips uploading your, art, your artifacts again. But when they have changed, they would uh, grab your, MP, your NPM dependencies Upload it to uh, to uh, S3 bucket um, and then publish a layer against that, and then you and then remove the the node modules from your uh, artifact, so your deployment uh, becomes a lot smaller. Um, and uh, so that becomes a quite useful pattern that I use in in a lot of my application, a lot of, well, a lot of my applications, and that's something that the the server framework gives you uh, through its plugins ecosystem that uh, you'd be really hard pressed to reinvent yourself uh, with other tools. Okay. Uh just want to make sure that everyone's on the same page there. So I think in Lambda, what you're talking about is you can define layers almost like you can in like a Docker container. So if you're using like like in your example, like a a node um, a node app, you could put all your dependencies in layer one and then put your code in layer two. And then if your code changes, you can just redeploy layer two. And the serverless framework gives you that functionality kind of for free. So it would automatically split your app into all of these layers and then um, work out if the dependencies haven't changed and just re-upload the top layer, which is just your code. So your deployment artifacts like very small each time. Um, so that's not entirely correct. So layer is uh, um, so layer is something that uh, when, so 
Okay, lambda is getting more and more complicated now. So uh, you also have this ability to, so typically you would uh, upload a zip file and that would be your application. And that zip file includes your code as well as any other dependencies that you want to ship with your, your, with your function. Uh, layer gives you a way for you to extrapolate some of that um, stuff from your zip file and upload them separately. And then you can reference the, the layers, uh, um, say, well, a different layer from your function. Uh, but there's a limit on how many layers you can reference, uh, and uh, the limit is, I think it's like five or six or something like that. It's fairly don't, uh, fairly low, uh, fairly a small number. Um, and the layer at runtime, they guess, uh, they guess they get they guess merge into your file in the file system, uh, so that uh, you have access to them, uh, but you don't have to upload them as part of your zip file. Nowadays, you can also run, you can also use a container image as your packaging format. Uh, I guess this is where you have to draw the the the, the um, the line where it's not running a container in, in the lambda per se because it doesn't give you the long running services and all of that it's just using containers as a packaging format so that uh, you can put more stuff into a lambda function so this is very useful for things like if you're doing uh, machine learning inference for example uh, a terror um, well a TensorFlow model would be easily a couple of you know, gig, <laughs> and the library that you're using for TensorFlow, it will also just be quite easily a couple hundred meg itself, uh, which on Lambda right now, the, the limit on the sort of storage is uh, 256 for, artifacts for, your, for your upload, and you have uh, 512 meg um, of uh, temporary storage. Um, so for you know, for something like doing machine learning inference, uh, it's obviously not uh, big enough, uh, but for something like machine learning inference, uh, you only need to read only access to a bunch of files and whatnot. So you can use the containers to uh, container images uh, to, to package your functions, the artifacts, and then upload them that way. Uh, but when you do that, it doesn't work with layers anymore. So what I'm talking about is specifically still keeping my code in the zip file, uh, but my dependencies uh, get shoved, uh, shoved, uh, shoved into a, a, a layer that gets uh, deployed separately and uh, it, it, uh, all my functions that will reference that layer um, and uh, and uh, and when it when, when they're running a runtime uh, they will have access to the same dependencies that uh, I had installed locally and and a lot of that uh, I guess operational overhead is uh, managed by the serverless uh, layers of plugin yeah exactly so you haven't got to reinvent the wheel wheel there so it automatically so I guess what I was trying to get at is if you've basically just made like a tiny change in your function, like added one more line to it, the service framework would automatically work out oh, only your code has changed, so I'm leaving the layers alone. Versus if you installed a new NPM package, it would go, oh, the layers change, I need to upload both the code and your layer. But you haven't got to kind of work that out. The framework handles all of that for you. So, okay, cool. So the last point I wanted to talk about would be, um, are there any particular languages that are a really good fit for serverless? Um, so I guess it depends uh, on the on, on your particular context. So when it comes to like APIs, uh, you obviously worry about uh, latency because the APIs are typically user facing. So if your API takes a long time to respond, uh, uh, it's not going to give you a great uh, user experience. So for API functions, uh, you typically want to avoid uh, Java and uh, .NET uh, um, because of the fact that they have a much longer code start time. Uh, so cold start is uh, is what happens when so a request comes in to api gateway and the api gateway says okay i'm configured this endpoint to call this lambda function so it calls a lambda service to say hey i want to invoke this function 
And the Lambda service is going to receive that request and say, okay, for this function, do I have a worker running already? If not, I need to create a new one. Sorry, do I have a worker running already and is available to handle this new request? Maybe they're busy handling some other requests already. So if I don't have any free workers, then I have to create a new worker and to, and to initialize the node runtime and all of that environment stuff. Uh, and, and then that's what we call a co-start whereby the whole process is going to happen. Uh, so a new micro VM gets, uh, gets spawned and uh, it initializes the node runtime and then initializes your code uh, and run all the initialization around your modules, uh, you know, anything that you got, uh, any dependencies you have where you have required something, something, uh, all of those uh, initialization code gets run. And then after that's complete, then the, it handles the actual request by running your uh, function handler uh, method or function. So that first time a new worker is, is created, there's a bit more additional, there's additional latency. Um, for Node, for Ruby, for Golang and Python, I think you can typically expect uh, a few hundred milliseconds uh, for cold start. But when it comes to Java, when it comes to .NET Core, you're probably looking at a few seconds potentially, uh, maybe even more. Uh, had uh, um, I had some Scala functions in the past, uh, and the co-start time on those uh, was not pretty. <laughs> uh, but I mean, for uh, for if you're not doing API work you, and you're building more of a like a real-time streaming thing where you're streaming uh, events in in real time and you and you're you're processing them, you got this uh, really event-driven system uh, in the back uh, with event bridge or kinesis or whatnot, then the well, a few seconds uh, is fine. A few seconds additional overhead, uh, so latency uh, every now and then is okay because the latency is not user-facing. Users, users are not seeing that additional you know, five seconds or whatever that uh, happens every now and then. Um, then it's okay. It doesn't really then it doesn't really matter. So for those uh, for those background processes, uh, then you know language probably doesn't matter quite as much. Uh, unless you're talking about you need specific libraries, uh, if you do machine learning stuff, again, Python is probably still going to be your go-to because of the fact that most of the frameworks and tools are written in Python. Um, but for APIs, you typically want to avoid uh, .NET Core and Java or anything that's, uh, that's I guess, uh, requires a, a, a separate VM uh, at runtime. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. But are there any uh, particular languages that you think are the sweet spot? So I guess... With something like Go that's becoming very popular and we use that at Form 3, you've still got like the overhead of having to write Go, you know, Go code and import it all in and compile it. And it could be quite, there's going to be quite a lot of code there versus maybe something like JavaScript that could be very lightweight. So is there a particular go-to language that, that you would advise someone using if they're writing sort of um, API handlers? Or is it is it more down to as long as you afford those cold start languages you just mentioned, just whatever you're most comfortable with would be fine. Yeah, I think uh, with uh, languages like uh, uh, Node.js is, uh, well, Node.js is um, by far the best supported language uh, in terms of the just general tooling uh, and also just in terms of the, the community, the size of the community out there. So you get more support and help and uh, more articles available on how to do that uh, with Lambda and all that. Um, but I've seen a lot of people build API functions with uh, Golang, with Python, with uh, Node.js. Uh, uh, they all, everyone seems to be you know, happy, of course, with uh, Golang, like you said, there's additional steps to compile and then all of that. Um, 
but if that's what you're used to already, so in terms of tooling, uh, in terms of I guess the developer or, or the development flow is not um, it's not it doesn't add too much, and uh, those additional steps can quite easily be do can, can, could be quite easy dealt with uh, uh, by better tooling uh, with the server framework. You can you know if you need to do something yourself, you can also just write custom plugins yourself that uh, takes care of a lot of that additional. I guess the compilation steps uh, you need for your uh, for your GoLang applications. So I think um, it's mostly it's mostly is uh, well mostly is uh, is uh, uh, something that you, uh, mostly you got to think about the code starts. Uh, beyond that, uh, it's just a matter of uh, what you are most familiar with and uh, the tooling support. Awesome, thanks a lot. So yeah, I think that's pretty much all we've got time for today. Thanks a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Where can people find you if they want to read your blog or you mentioned that you host a podcast? Yeah, as you can go to theburningmonk.com um, and that's where I blog and, and uh, if you you can also find me as uh, The Burning Monk on Twitter and LinkedIn and, and most other places uh, as well. Um, and you can also check out my um, my podcast uh, at therealworldserverless.com as well. Awesome. Thanks again for coming on the show. Form 3 are looking to double the size of our remote first engineering team. If you'd like to help the world move money faster and enjoy working on complex technical challenges using the latest tech, feel free to check out the careers page in the description.